We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality. Neil Bradley, Pierre Hi, Hello. my special uh, request and invitation and all those things, Laura Knight Yachik. Um, the topic of our show, as you may know, is, or the title of our show is Babylon, Ancient Rome, and the American Empire. And that song, uh, okay, maybe it was a bit spurious, but it did mention Babylon, by the rivers of Babylon. And, the only one uh, you could find, huh? Yeah, and uh, the only popular one we could find. And it did mention Zion, you know, so there is a tentative link there between what's going on in the world today, Babylon and Zion. Um, But anyway, the point of of the show is to discuss um, the state of the world today under the American empire and maybe look back at uh, previous empires, specifically the uh, ancient uh, the Roman empire and then perhaps going back further into kind of biblical times or biblical narratives about Babylon and the fall of cities and predictions about cataclysms and all this kind of stuff that was tied up uh, with, you know, kind of, in theory, the idea of uh, corruption of civilization, uh, very much a biblical thing, I think, for most people, Um, because as far as ancient Rome goes, um, it didn't really fall in any kind of cataclysm as far as official history is concerned. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, Welcome to the show, Laura. Hi, everybody. They hornswoggled me. Um, so, um, yeah, so my, my, quest, my question here is... I just want you to know, I didn't even know the title okay. of the show. Babylon, Ancient Rome, and the American Empire. All but, I heard was that I was going to talk about Babylon. I'm not prepared for Ancient Rome and the American Empire. You're not? Yeah, right. <laughs> That's okay. Well, uh, what inspired us to ask you to come on was your recent article. Lament for Babylon. Yeah. On thought.net. Uh, it's quite a short article, uh, but it kind of attempts to draw parallels between what's going on today and I mean you don't mention the Roman Empire but nope. you mention Babylon and Babylon is essentially it's, it's kind of biblical history especially in terms of the destruction of Babylon, the fall of Babylon. Nobody believes it really happened. It's some kind of allegory or some well, kind of biblical no, no, no. thing, right? No, the, the thing is, is Babylon did fall, of course. Um I mean, there's a story, there are numerous stories about the fall of Babylon. But the thing is, is that the the topic of my article came from 
uh, chapter in the book of Revelation, you know, where it talks about the great whore of Babylon and the fate of Babylon. And this uh, this chapter, this chapter 18, comes after chapter 17, which uh, talks about the empire of the beast, you know, the, the number 666 and... Um, you know, it describes the characteristics of this empire as it, you know, rises to uh, power and then how it fools everybody, deceives everyone, controls everyone, and then uh, talks about uh, this mark of the beast and everyone who takes the mark is doomed and those people who resist are not, they will be saved by, you know, the cavalry at the 11th hour. And then it just goes right into talking about this whore of Babylon. Uh, you know, it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, I just want everybody to know that when I'm just talking off the cuff, after having been told that I was going to talk about this topic, uh, mm-hmm. you don't expect me to s- cite all sources and... No and uh, names and that sort of thing. I'm just going to talk in a in general way about things. But that particular chapter ha- is is the one about, you know, no one buys their wares anymore. You know, the smoke of Babylon rises up like torment. And, and uh, in my book, The Noah Syndrome, I pretty much identify the United States or the United States and its influence, its sphere of influence, which we can say is pretty much global mm-hmm. is uh is the beast is the empire of the beast and for many years there were a lot of people i was reading i was reading books and articles uh from these various people talking about you know new world order new world order and of course new world order was kind of it was a masonic thing either it was the un or then it was nato or then it was uh you know uh it was something out of the city of london it was um any number of things, you know, George Soros is always n- named in there. And the one thing that most of these uh, individuals writing and talk about, talking about this New World Order thing was they didn't talk about the United States. I mean, how many times have you seen uh, a video or read an article about endless um, train loads of shackles, of body bags, of... Um, you know, white vans full of Chinese uh, looking soldiers or foreign looking soldiers that are going to be brought into the U.S. Or the U.N. Yeah, the U.N. They're going to they're going to institute the new world order and and basically it's something outside of the U.S. that's going to be imposed on the U.S. You know, the U.S. is somehow going to be conquered by this new world order and all of the good, innocent, exceptional. Americans are going to be, uh, you know, put to work as slaves or, or mm-hmm. forced to take marks. And all of this is, is attributed to some outside force, some outside influence. And, and nobody ever stopped to think that maybe the U.S. was the beast. Maybe the U.S. was the creator and propagator of the New World Order. And, and maybe it was trying to put it off on all the rest of the world. Well, it would certainly be a very uh, sneaky maneuver to convince Americans uh, to look outside their borders for the threat when it was brewing all along inside their borders. 
Yeah, so it's mm-hmm. it's kind of a strange thing. But anyway, I, I started thinking about this, and I started thinking, well, a lot of what's happening right now is kind of shaping up to uh, resemble in ways these ancient prophecies. It's like, you know, certain phrases come to mind, and they and they trigger thoughts like, "Gee, that's that's like that," or "That's like this," or you know. So it's um. So I wrote that little short article, and and the thing was, was I puzzled over it for a few days because this issue of prophecy is kind of a, it's kind of a thorny topic, because, um, it's most of the prophecies of ancient writings, and you know, most people who are into prophecy are generally people who are interested in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And they talk about, you know, the prophecies of uh, you know, Jeremiah and Isaiah and, and the various prophets in the Bible, Haggai, Malachi, Amos, Obadiah, uh, mm-hmm. the whole thing. And, of course, at the time that Christianity was being imposed on the West, they were taking a lot of things from this Old Testament. They were trying to tie themselves up with Judaism because Judaism had come along and made itself, you know, the artificially made itself the oldest group of people in the world, right? They were the, you know, from Adam to uh, to Moses, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But they were trying to tie themselves to this because somehow they bought into this scam and they were interpreting all of these ancient prophecies to... Uh, represent uh, Judaism prophesying the birth of the Messiah. And then, of course, when you read these these ancient books, these prophets, um, you get the impression that um, they were prophesying something that was going to happen far in the future. But most um, scholars think that they were either if there was a prophecy that was shown to be true, it was written after the fact. And on the other hand, a lot of things were being talked about in terms of metaphors. They were talking about, you know, whores and and uh, Jerusalem uh, was, uh, you know, a female. Israel was a female. And, of course, uh, uh, Yahweh, Jehovah, was a male god and... Mm-hmm. And Israel went whoring after other gods, and mm. and he was going to put her away, and he was going to you know kill all her children, and you know all of these things are are talked about in these in these strange metaphoric terms. So it's not so easy to really know what they were talking about to begin with. That's the first thing, and the second thing is, did it really happen? You know, people have assumed that it did because the you know the only history they have to cover a certain period that may not ever have happened is is the bible so they fall on it fall upon it as um as actual history when it isn't and so we get into a big mess you know with that sort of thing so the whole thing the issue of prophecy is a big deal among um most christian fundamentalists and it began more or less as a uh kind of a Christian thing, at least as far as our current civilization is concerned. That's not to say that there weren't prophets. More more often than not in ancient times, it wasn't so much a prophet as it was a reader of the signs in the skies who saw a comet 
coming close and saying, oops, you know, we may have a problem here because they had a, a history of having cometary impacts. And then that later on was misunderstood as prophecy that you get up there and you just prophesy some, you know, the word of the Lord comes upon you instead of, you know, gee, with my eyes, I sighted a comet in the sky and based on my calculations, you know, it just may hit us. Mm-hmm. So something that was really scientific got converted into something really nebulous and, and iffy. And then, um, so those kinds of things were happening. And, uh, so there was prophecy in ancient times, but more often than not, there were interpreters of mm. heavenly signs. It wasn't so much prophecy as it was interpretation. Something happened, it had to be interpreted. The, the big thing that they were all concerned about in Rome was interpreting anomalous phenomena and deciding you know, which God was angry, why he was angry, and what you needed to do about it to appease the God. If a hermaphrodite was born, this was, you know, con- considered to be a, uh, an omen of of, uh, Ill, of an ill wind for Rome. So they had to take and, uh, like, sacrifice a, a goat or something, take the goat, take all its entrails out, uh, sew the hermaphrodite up inside the goat's belly and put it on a ship and take it out to sea and dump it overboard. And, <laughs> and then they had to get nine times nine maidens or... Three times nine maidens, three times uh, nine young boys. They had to march around the city uh, singing and chanting, you know, to appease the gods. So everything was a matter of interpretation. You had to interpret what the, you know, if if a fall of rocks, if there was a lightning strike that hit the temple, or if there was uh, uh, a calf born that had three legs or five legs or something, any kind of thing like that, uh, ring around the moon, um, a flood, a fall of hail, all the kinds of things that are really happening right now in our present day with all this climate change going on. There was a lot of a lot of that going on in Rome, and there's a lot of records of it, of these events, and how they were interpreted, because it was more about interpretation than it was about prophecy mm. for these ancients. So, and uh, can't you reconcile this notion of prophecies and observation if... Actually, there is a, this human cosmic connection we posited, and there is a correlation between excess and abuse committed by empires and uh, cosmic reactions. In this sense, what the observers observed at the Roman time, correlation between abuses and react- cosmic reactions is still valid today with the Roman well, Empire. Yeah, yes, because the, the, the Romans went about this very, very scientifically. They they kept impeccable records of everything that happened, you know, what followed after that event, what kind of appeasement they performed, you know, whether they danced naked in the moonlight, you know, stuffed green peppers up their nose, any number of things like that. So they would keep these impeccable records, and then when the next time one of these events happened, then they would know either what to do or they would know what followed it. Or they would try to find the reason for it because, you know, if this if this uh, if this flood occurs, it's because the consul uh, did not, you know, make the proper sacrifice before he marched off to war, or the uh, you know the general of another army asked for a peace conference and our general refused it. That was, you know, that was uh, you know kind of a 
like a sin, if you want to call it that. That was an error. He should have accepted that because, you know, the gods obviously were favoring the other general, and our guy refused to talk to him. So um, as a result of that, there was a torrential rainstorm, and the entire city was flooded, and hundreds of people died. So they were... They were scientifically keeping these records, finding reasons. But the odd thing is, is when you read this sort of thing, you see, you see their interpretations changing over the years. Because in the beginning, they would honestly try to find their real fault. You know, how have we angered the gods? What do we need to do to make things right? In addition to marching around and singing you know, where is our real flaw? You know, what what can we do? And that was a very important point because even if the rituals were wrong, there were this strong there was this strong awareness that human conduct had an influence on cosmic events. Oh yeah. So they would they would uh they started being very careful, trying to find out the fault, trying to correct it, and sometimes that included you know, all the people in the city having to conform to a certain behavior. They had to uh, give up wearing, you know, gold jewelry or give up luxurious behaviors or give up, uh, mm. you know, various things. And then the people would do this. Everything would kind of straighten out and then they would go along. But over time, this interpretation began to be really corrupted, and you can notice this if you, if you read these texts, that they began to be kind of, they had like a blind spot. Everything started being interpreted in their own favor, as though they never really did anything wrong, and the other individuals or the other countries or cities or mm-hmm. their opponents were the ones that were doing something wrong, and you know, or even they would interpret a sign to say, we should go out and kill these people. Hmm. You know, we, we haven't killed enough. Well, taking it from supposed original <clears throat> correct understanding that it was corruption among humans, uh, in, uh, in human society that would uh, bring on a kind of uh, cosmic destruction or some kind of natural destruction, uh, Going from assuming that people had that understanding, getting to the point of marching with kids around the city or sacrificing animals is like really far away from the true understanding. I mean, that's it's pretty simple. If you have a corrupt society, if you really go down down the tubes in that respect, uh, you're gonna. Well, right, right, because initially, but, like I said, they started trying to really find their fault and correcting it in themselves, and then it became corrupted, and it ended up being rituals, you know, yeah. marching around the city, yeah, well, singing. And, but, th- and this actually carried over into Christianity. And I can see how it would, it would uh, easily or quickly be transformed into we have to go and kill that group of people because they're the corrupt ones. Oh. At least that's got the, the, the direct link to the idea of corruption being to, to blame and, and getting rid of corruption is a solution. Like, look at those bunch of harlots or, you know, whatever, you know, ne'er-do-wells over in that other town. They're the ones who are drinking and womanizing all night. Let's kill them. Yeah. You know, that that makes sense to a certain extent, even yeah. though it's, it's, it's pointing the finger at someone else. Because, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, all the other stuff that it got so corrupted into, I mean, like, essentially, the idea of sacrificing animals, where did that come from? Why, how did it ever get translated into sacrificing animals? Like, the the gods like, well, like 
blood or something? Yeah, or? well, this this is kind of strange because that's that's the survival from the previous civilization that fell, you know, i.e. Uh-huh. <laughs> Babylon. Yeah. And Babylon apparently got very, very corrupt and, and things went, you know, really bad. And uh, and then they, you know, they got hostile and and destroyed each other. And it was just it was just all this fighting and infighting. And, and it, the, the odd thing is, is when you read all these records, you read all these ancient texts, you find out that during the times that all of this backbiting, backstabbing, infighting, outfighting, back and forth, you did this, no, you did that, et cetera, et cetera, that all the time that's going on, running as a as a slow drumbeat in the background is this continuous series of anomalous events, the weather getting bad, you know, torrential rainstorms, floods, fireballs, comets, um, all kinds of, of warnings. It's like Mother Nature starts having these reactions to the behaviors of human beings and it starts sending out these warnings or these things start happening and they just completely freaking ignore it. Mm. You know, they nothing is going to interfere with their war. Yeah, and you can see this reversal of values and this ignorance of uh, strong cosmic uh, signals in the Judaic creed, the way in the mythicized Judaic history, the way Egypt and then Babylon fell was not due to the corruption, to the excess induced by the Levite priest in those countries, but it was due to the oppressor, the Babylonians or the Egyptians. So you see the twist. You have a population that corrupts locally the rest of the population. You have a small elite corrupting the rest of the population. And post facto, after the destruction, cosmic destruction, the elite blames the victims, the ones that they were oppressing. And because of this oppression, you have this cosmic reaction. So there's a total reversal of values and uh, of the interpretation of the real story, what's really happening on a cosmic level. Well, one of the things that uh, was going on in Babylon was that the king was the intermediary between the gods and the people. And the king, therefore, had to be pure and righteous. And, of course, when this started out, it was immediately after a previous cataclysm, and and they were really nervous and scared from what all had happened. So they were taking it seriously, and, and, and kings were really righteous and good and trying to be clean and proper and, and treat their people well. But over time, you know, this got corrupted because no more comets were coming, no more disasters were happening. So, you know, they thought, well, the gods have forgotten about us. You know, we don't have to worry about that anymore. We can go ahead and do what we want, and we'll just give it, uh, you know, since it's the custom, we'll just give it uh, kind of lip service. We'll just, you know. But you notice that what did happen was when these disasters occurred, it was generally blamed on the king. It was because the king had created some condition wherein the gods were no longer pleased because the king was supposed to tell the people what to do. He was supposed to set the example. And if he was not telling people the right things to do, if he was not directing the people in the right way, and, you know, this was a ritual flaw and the king had to die, you know, or, or the king had to get clean pretty quick, one or the other. Usually, usually they had to die. 
And towards the end of, uh, say, the Babylonian Empire and even the Assyrian Empire, which came up, you know, after after that collapse, um, you read a lot of these texts, and they're basically interpretations from these specialists of uh, interpreting the God's will. And the king would ask ask a question, you know, I. I had a dream, you know, what does it mean, et cetera, et cetera. So you get these texts, here's the interpretation. And what you notice in all of this is that some of these, uh, some of these kings, uh, particularly at the, towards the end of the Assyrian Empire, um, they were having a lot of health problems. And the king is supposed to be perfect. And they, apparently they were making a great effort to conceal these health problems. And one is inclined to think that for example the uh the last of the 18th dynasty in egypt um akhenaten and his gang you know they're they're all club-footed they had uh, uh various kinds of physical abnormalities uh scoliosis um you know they were inbred and and defective and one suspects that the people turned against that dynasty so viciously or as viciously as they did because they figured that the terrible things that were happening, the plagues and so forth that were falling on Egypt at that time uh, were because the king was not just uh, ritually unclean, but that he was physically and obviously impure. He was defective. So there's a lot of that sort of thing, but that's, that's, that's not even the thing I want to talk about. The thing I want to talk about is prophecy. Yes. I mean, is there such a thing as prophecy, and can it work? I mean, can people can people tune into future? I mean, if we live in an open universe, how can you turn tune into future events? I mean, that are well. I have an example that people can listen to. Yes. Right now. His name is Morgan Andrew Robertson. No, he wasn't a passenger on the Titanic. He was an American author who in 1898, 14 years before the Titanic's maiden voyage, published a short story originally titled Futility and later renamed Wreck of the Titan. That in itself is not remarkable. What is remarkable is how eerily similar the events in his story are to those of the real-life Titanic. His story features an enormous British luxury liner called the Titan, which is described as the largest craft afloat and the greatest of the works of men, and, like the Titanic, was considered unsinkable. The Titan is described as 800 feet in length. The Titanic was 882. The Titan carried 24 lifeboats, as few as the law allowed, less than half needed for her passenger capacity. The Titanic carried only 20 lifeboats, less than half the number required for her passenger capacity of 3,000. On an April night, the Titan, moving too fast at 25 knots, hits an iceberg in the North Atlantic, roughly 400 miles from Newfoundland. On April 14, 1912, 20 minutes before midnight, the Titanic, moving too fast at 23 knots, strikes an iceberg in the North Atlantic. 400 miles from Newfoundland. The Titan sinks bow first and 2,500 souls are lost. The Titanic sinks bow first and 2,208 people die in the frigid waters. 
In both cases, the agonizing screams of the dying are heard by survivors. Morgan Andrew Robertson died on March 24, 1915, 11 months and 10 days after the Titanic went down. That's the example. And it's pretty remarkable when you think, when you listen to the, the correlation between the details of his story. I mean, right down to, he was within a couple of uh, hundred uh, of the number of people who yeah. died. He was the length of the ship. Length of the ship. How it went down. 80, 80 feet. Uh, the same number, almost the same number of miles from Newfoundland. I mean, it's at, what, 23 knots and 24 knots. The speed they were to the, the fiction and the, the fictionist one, the fictional one, and the real Titanic were traveling at. I mean, that's got to draw your attention. Say, coincidence or? Yeah, and he's not the only one who did that. There was another story that was similar, and it was published right around the time of the sinking. So it had been written prior to. Now I have a little example that I want to share, and I actually wrote about this. And the introduction to uh, to our published versions of our Cassiopeian transcripts. Uh, let me read this little bit to you. Most prophecies that we know of from ancient times were written after the fact. Most predictions of more recent times that I am aware of that have come to pass, so to say, have a peculiar characteristic. Let me give an example. The assassination of John F. Kennedy. This prediction was published in the Sunday Supplement Parade on May 13, 1956. And it was by Gene Dixon. And it said, quote, As for the 1960 election, Mrs. Dixon thinks it will be dominated by labor and won by a Democrat. But he will be assassinated or die in office though not necessarily in his first term. But then, in 1960, when John Kennedy was actually in the race, Ms. Dixon predicted that he would fail to win the presidency. Hmm. So we have here a really kind of a remarkable, you know, problem to look at because, you know, how did she get it so right in 1956, four years before the election and how did she get it so wrong in 1960 you know what happened and this this brings up another problem you have to keep in mind that as far as we know john kennedy was targeted by a conspiracy that only came into being because he actually did manage to obtain the presidency thanks to the countering machinations of his father which gene dixon apparently did not perceive and then he showed his true populist colors. Apparently he had some sort of a, of a <clears throat> what would you call it, a, a, an awakening at some point and you know, basically decided that he was going to be a different kind of president than he had thought he was going to be to begin with. So he had an epiphany, which is suggested by James Douglas in his book JFK and the Unspeakable, and so if predictions are possible because a person can tap into an information field or gather information from the minds of others telepathically, as would be suggested by reading a conspiracy, you know, telepathically tuning into the conspirators, the minds of the conspirators, 
that would mean that there was a conspiracy already afoot in 1956 to assassinate a president in 1960, whoever he was, and no matter what he did. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a it's kind of a little bit of a conundrum. I have an explanation. Yes. Uh, the only way a conspiracy to kill JFK could have been in the minds of conspirators, conspirators before he got elected was if they they themselves the conspirators conspirators themselves had some uh, awareness of what he was going to do in the future. Well, that's possible too. Remote viewing, the fabled remote viewing, for example. Yeah, there's remote viewing, and there's also another possibility that they decided that there was already a conspiracy afoot to assassinate a president for uh, purposes of putting a country into shock, a la Naomi mm-hmm. Klein shock doctrine. Mm-hmm. And JFK just happened to be the one. No, yeah, well, well, he was chosen to be the one. He was chosen to be the one. I would say. He was shunted into power or allowed to become president, uh, to be the sacrificial lamb. Because, you know, if you read about how the American elections were being run, even back then, you know that most of them were bought and paid for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, ballot box 49. Mm -hmm. And Douglas Reed explains it very well in Controversy of Zion with uh, what he called Mr. House. Mm -hmm. That might explain. Organizing elections way back in the early part of the 20th century, you know. Yeah, picking and choosing. Yeah, they pick and choose who's going to run. They pick and choose who's going to win, and they mm-hmm. pick and choose you know what kind of drama is going to be played out during that uh, presidency by that president. I mean, they're basically given their lines. You know, they walk in the White House and they're handed a script. You know, this is what you're going to do. So I mean, it's like, but the thing is, apparently John Kennedy didn't like the script and they probably knew he wouldn't like the script mm-hmm. and they knew how he would react to the script. They obviously knew that Barack Obama would read mm-hmm. any script they gave him. Literally. <laughs> and uh, this idea is about uh, remote viewing uh, prophecies, seeing the future um, might make sense if this uh, cosmic information field transcends time and space non-local and non-temporal. If this is the case, it totally changes our perception of linear time and of future. It means you have some actors, either on the good side, side, like um, this uh, prophetic lady, or on the bad side, and those remote viewers, uh, close to the conspirators mentioned to Joe, who can go back and forth along the timeline and try to change things today in order to alter the future and choose the future that fits their, their goal the best. Mm-hmm. So you have this permanent struggle between different sides to shape the future and to opt for the, the best future for their interests. Well, yeah, that's one way to look at it. It's, the whole thing is just, uh, you know, we were we were talking earlier about this Babylon issue, and I pointed out that... Uh, the book of Revelation, there are various scholars who have analyzed it and and one group of them say that it was uh it was written in the first century A D and maybe second century first or second century and it was a political tract. There was uh 
a group of people who were communicating with one another in these metaphoric terms about the politics of the day and mm-hmm. and they had designated names, you know, kind of like code names like 007 or whatever. So then there was the Beast, there was Horror Babylon, there was, you know, all this sort of thing. But, I, you know, that doesn't really hold up very well because this kind of terminology is even more ancient than that. And it, uh, it goes back to some of the ancient... Um, uh, what would you call it, the uh, um, prophetic writings or interpretive writings that come out from Greece. Um, so it's like, that, that that really doesn't hold water. Then the more interesting thing about it was that uh, Fomenko analyzed that first chapter where it talks about the the woman who flees into the desert and gives birth and and the dragon that went after her and so forth, that he uh, he interpreted as a horoscope and shows pretty definitively that that's kind of how horoscopes would have been written in the, in the 15th century. So he, he designates, uh, he actually figures out the date that this horoscope is describing. It's between late September and early October of, what, 1458? So... Um, yeah, I mean, there's um, there's Babylon as the actual. I mean, there's ruins of Babylon, etc. It was a town, a city, whatever. Um, but then there's the the biblical narrative about Babylon, which is open to interpretation. But um, for example, it's there's a statement uh, that the New Testament book of Revelation refers to Babylon many centuries after it ceased to be a major political center, and some scholars believe it to be the use of apocalyptic literature. To refer to the Roman Empire, right? That's that's, that's, what, that's the ones I was referring to. Yes. they are. But is there some value, or is that a valid uh, interpretation? Because well, it, it actually could be because since we have an idea that Rome was going through some pretty pretty heavy stuff, uh, I mean, from before the time of Caesar, mm. so it was kind of like ongoing intermittent stuff, and it just got worse and worse and worse, and then. Rome finally went kaflui, and supposedly it was like uh, what was it four uh, five forty a d mm-hmm. and uh, Mike Bailey and other uh, uh, individuals, astronomers and dendrochronologists say that it was done by a comet. There are, are many more scientific studies being done on this that you know cometary destruction is what brought an end to Rome. So perhaps perhaps it happened earlier than we are told in our historical timeline. Perhaps our historical timeline has been, you know, seriously manipulated. Mm-hmm. Uh there is has been a suggestion that it's like four hundred and seventy eight years off. If that's the case, then we are actually in the year what, fifteen uh fifteen. Yeah. 1620 or so? If you take 478 from 2014, what do you get? Oh, well, like 500 from 2014. It's like, yeah, 1576 or 1536 or something like that. So then if you take this 478 years off of the Greenland ice cores, you end up with... What is it? Uh, Year 1000, roughly. Yeah, 1000, 10, 1010. 
And it just so happens that one of the strongest ammonium signals in the ice cores is, uh, is registered for like 1008 thereabouts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so maybe our timeline has been that drastically altered. And then if you if you calculate backwards to figure out when 540 A.D. would have fallen, if you subtract 478 years from our timeline, you find that it's 63 A.D. Mm-hmm. And that would put it right at the time of somebody writing something like Revelations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 63 A.D., sometime, uh, supposedly Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D. So that would put it right at the right time. And it's just, obviously they were using previous apocalyptic literature of how these things happen, and they were describing what they were seeing. So if if the original parts of the book of Revelation were written at that time, and they were written about Rome and the destruction of Rome, mm-hmm. and then later on, uh, this Kabbalist that Fomenko identifies as the author of at least that first chapter where he puts in a horoscope, perhaps he was sending a message to the future saying, you know, this... This story about the fall of Babylon, all this sort of stuff, this is the same thing that has happened in our time. Um, and here is you know, a clue mm-hmm. to people of the future to be able to figure out when it actually happened. Here's you know, a dated period. And he just kind of added it on, redacted. That was fairly common back then because to gain authority for a, a text, you generally just took somebody else's stuff and added your own stuff to it. So It, it sort of strikes me in that sense, Liam, that if that the Bible and the, the Old Testament uh, literature about uh, Babylon, and I mean, as you quoted in your article where it says, you know, uh, she has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit, uh, drunk the wine generic. of passion. Okay, but it's saying, it's at least keeping the tie between uh, destruction so, from on high, be it God or because whatever, of behavior. because of behavior, at least that idea is still there as opposed to absolutely um sacrificing and it was definitely it it was definitely still there then and the interesting thing is is like this is a generic description of how these kinds of destructions happen empire after empire you read enough history you read enough ancient texts, you find out that they start out well-intentioned they start out you know trying to be good because they got got the bejeebies scared out of them from some kind of cataclysmic event and then uh, after a while, nothing more bad happens. And then uh, as happens, you know, everywhere in all times and places, psychopaths worm their way into uh, power because power is what they naturally crave. And they all behave the same way, civilization after civilization. So you always end up with the same kinds of corruptions, the same kinds of, of deeds and events taking place. The people being bamboozled and following after them and you know, becoming corrupt themselves, even if they are ordinarily decent people, they become corrupt themselves under the influence of psychopathy. I mean, look at what's his name, the, uh, the guy who did the, 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 the experiments with people being instructed to uh, shock people. Oh, Milgram. Milgram. The Milgram, the Milgram mm-hmm. experiments. You know, they talk about how willing people were to inflict pain and suffering even to death, on other people. But, you know, the thing that doesn't get highlighted as much as it should is the fact that these authoritative directors of the experiment were, were, were providing rationalization and instructions for this to be done. So it's, 
you know, there are most people follow the leader. Most people want an authority. Mm-hmm. Most people are emotionally immature because they're made that way in our society. That's one of the problems uh, I've always found with that Milgram experiment and its results, which is that people are only too willing to inflict pain on others, is that they didn't highlight enough the influence, as you just said, of the authority figure. Take the authority figure away, and would those people have just spontaneously decided to uh, inflict pain on another human being? No, Probably it, not. It, it, it comes back to the same ideation of Babylon. The king is the intermediary between God and the people. He is the one who is supposed to not only set the example, mm-hmm. but instruct people how to behave in such a way that the entire city will be safe from the you know the mm-hmm. ravages of destruction because of bad behavior mm-hmm. he's supposed to he's supposed to set the example not only by his own behavior but by leading them in a way showing them what they're supposed to do telling them what they're supposed to do and this comes through loud and clear in the ancient literature and so you t- you take the ancient city of babylon or stanley milgram's prison experiment you know, and you have the same Nazi Germany, and now today. I mean, think about this whole thing about the way the world is right now. I don't know if anybody else is is really as pissed off about it as I am, but you know, it's like the world we live in today is so different from the world we lived in in the year two thousand mm-hmm. that it's like it's like a nightmare, and it has proceeded. Very, very rapidly. 2000 was, what, 14 years ago. Mm-hmm. Fourteen In 14 years, we have gone to a fairly reasonable world. There were problems. There were flaws. The U.S. was doing things that it shouldn't have been doing, the CIA, et cetera. Other countries were doing things they shouldn't have been doing. But there was a, there was a tendency, the overt ideas, principles that people adhered to, the behavior of people, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was basically decent. And now even... Ordinary people are completely... Well, the, the change that I see uh, in particular from what you're talking about is that back then, before 2000, let's say, um, their, the authorities were being corrupt and evil and killing people and stuff, but they weren't doing it kind of it was in, covert. In, in people's faces and not forcing people or demanding, trying to manipulate the population into accepting it. Right. I'm thinking here of, of torture, getting people under under bush, getting people to accept torture as good. And now most recently, there's plenty of other examples, but now most recently with the Israelis trying to get people to accept that killing, like, killing Palestinians is good. Yeah, you know? killing Palestinians so is They're okay. directly trying to, um, you know, to subvert the kind of minds and, kind of, I suppose, basic humanity of ordinary people. It's by not involving only setting them, a bad it. example, it is... It is making people think that it's okay themselves. to. I mean, look at this mm-hmm. cop that, uh, that hit the news the other day. He made some rant about, you know, he doesn't have to follow the Constitution because Obama does. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, look at the example that George Bush said. It's okay to unilaterally and preemptively invade another country who has never bothered you ever in your freaking life. Mm-hmm. I mean, when did Iraq ever invade anything or anybody? Oh, he might have weapons of mass destruction. He never had any ma- weapons of mass destruction. So he set this example. This example was accepted by the leaders of other countries. I mean, there was some shock, I noticed, around the world. People were, oh, wait a minute. Uh, uh, are you sure you're, it's okay to do that? Uh, 
you know, maybe you ought to think twice about that. Uh, da 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 da. Oh no, <clears throat> you know, we're going to go in there. And we're going to, you know, slam bam Iraq, and we're going to take their, you know, legally authorized ruler, and we're going to hang him. And then they did the same thing to Libya, and and then they started to, to try to do the same thing to Syria. Mm-hmm. So the example was set by George Bush. George Bush obviously was just a puppet. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, well, we'll say that right up front. He was obviously just a puppet, but he was a willing. Mm-hmm. He was a gleeful puppet. Mm-hmm. He was not just willing. He was fiendishly gleeful. He was gleeful. loving it, yeah. So, so the example that is set by the leaders, that is accepted by other leaders within the sphere of influence, mm-hmm. and then the people begin to behave that way, the people follow that, and it's a very precious few who actually can really see and really object and say, wait a minute, mm. this is wrong, 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 wrong. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's a testimony to, uh, I suppose, the essential kind of general decency and goodness, if I can go that far, in, in ordinary people, that these leaders uh, and this elite have had to, uh, people to such an extent to get them to go along with the kind of uh, criminality that you're that you're saying they had to you know Iraq was freedom and democracy well f- Iraq was first of all protecting the entire world from WMDs that didn't exist but then it's also spreading wonderful freedom and democracy and getting all these people to identify with these noble ideals to be accomplices in barbarity and yeah. in in so doing, make them make them make liable them, for it. Yeah. And if there is any hell to pay, the the kind of phrase, then the people who went along with it and bought the bullshit and bought the lies are responsible. I mean, that's people need to accept that fact. Though I'm I'm sure none of them are listening to this show. The people who I'm talking about, because most people who listen to this show have. But maybe you know someone who's like this. People need to accept the fact that okay, you may not think that there is any kind of a judgment and you don't believe in religion and stuff, there is no judgment day, there's no, there's no kind of penalty to pay for anything that humans do, humans do, you know. But if there's any doubt in your mind and you think there might be some uh, cause and effect going on here or some direct result of that kind of criminality that people have allowed themselves to be pulled into, well then... If you believe those lies and if you have gone along with any of the bullshit that's been told that is fundamentally, and you know it's fundamentally inhuman and wrong, then just like in any legal case, if, you're, if you participated in a crime or in a murder as an accomplice, you're going to jail too. And, yeah. and uh, maybe the fact that the majority of human beings embrace those lies, accept and sometimes even promote this violence, the murder, the suffering, the torture, might be the final marker that starts the global reset process. Because if you look about, if you look at it, when you have a whole population, human or not human, that is so much into lies, that is so much opposite to truth to the, there might be indeed a universal mechanism that starts this cleansing process. Because you have this very strong law, universal law that permeates the the whole creation for living entities to strive and to develop towards more complexity, more intelligence, more information, more creativity. And isn't the mass belief of the worst lies one of the worst negation of all those 
life principles. It's entropy. Well, you're positing a possible, we don't know that such a law exists or that there is, I we have no say, evidence. I, would, but, oh, we, I think there's plenty of evidence in history that such a, because again and again and again, as I said, this description of what happened to Babylon hmm. is a generic description of what has happened repeatedly with the collapse and destruction of previous empires. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the, the most immediate one that we have to study is Rome, and we do have a uh, sufficient number of texts and descriptions of what was going on, I mean, to, just some really bodacious descriptions of what happened there, to know how it came down. But there is also, fortunately, uh, a considerable amount of textual material available for the prior collapse, i.e., Babylon, you know, the Mesopotamian empires, you know, all of that. Because when things went kaflui, when things started getting hot, and I mean literally hot, burning, you know, all of their clay tablets, you know, down in the basement got cooked and preserved for a very long time. And then they were discovered and uh, many of them were deciphered. I mean, there are thousands and thousands of these clay tablets that have not yet been translated. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but people, scholars are working on them diligently and regularly, and you can, you know, get copies of, of what's been done. It's a little pricey, but um, you can get you can get these texts and read them, and you see that the same thing. Obviously, it's a little difficult uh, translating and, and understanding because, you know, the, the, the whole language thing, especially with the dead language, is, it's a little bit difficult. But you see the same things were going on, and, and you get the same things from uh, from Egypt, from the temple inscriptions, yeah. from papyri. Uh, so, yeah, it's, so can we say it's a law? Yeah, maybe well, in a sense, Revelation would not only describe the fall of Babylon, the fall of the Roman Empire, but he describes more fundamentally an archetype, an archetypal situation applying to all human population. Well, when the same signs, when the same behaviors occur, the same cosmic reaction occurs well. And here is a rub. If we take into account the work made by um, the morphic resonance and morphic field by Rupert Sheldrake about how an individual or population can learn a new pattern and the more this pattern is uh, exercised, the stronger it becomes. It becomes in every representative of the species. It, you can apply that to the whole human population and see that... It's like a pandemic. Recurringly over history, you've had this uh, fall of empire pattern enacted again and again. And right now, the U.S., and I mean, the U.S. is not a geographic entity, all the people resonating with this ideology are starting to resonate with this fall of the empire uh, archetype, pattern, habit. And once you have this resonance, it's very easy to go along the path. Yeah. I mean, look at what's happening happening in Ukraine. Ukraine is following after the path of the U.S. Look, uh, Germany is following after the path of the U.S. France has been following the path of the, you know, resonating with the U.S. Mm-hmm. They, up until oh, some years ago, they were a little bit resistant. But, you know, the whole, all of the NATO countries, you know, they're all, they're all getting into this resonant uh, activity and behavior, and they're being drawn into it and drawn along through it. And, and it's, 
it's just it's happening and and the thing is is like i just said it is a pandemic of psychopathy psychopaths at the top have exhibited certain behaviors they have set certain examples and the people have been taking these up they have been obeying them they have been enacting them themselves it's okay for me to go and and kill people it's okay for me to toss out the constitution it's okay for me to i mean look at the cops they're kind of like at the next level down from mm-hmm. the from the people at the top they're the enforcers well they're going along and they're behaving the same way the leaders behave mm-hmm. and so it's going on and going on and we have this pandemic of psychopathy and nature appears to be saying wait a minute you want to act like you've got a terrible disease that's eating you up from the inside, making your eyes, ears, nose, and mouth bleed, and dissolving your organs inside, well, we'll just give you a little physical manifestation of that. You're going to get a physical taste of what you're doing spiritually, psychologically, and emotionally. You get a little Ebola going on there. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting because when you talked about, uh, earlier on you talked about during the Roman Empire, leading to its fall, quote-unquote, um, that there was a lot of stuff going on. Uh, it wasn't just overnight from... It was going on for a number of years. Right, kind of like it is now. Kind of like it and is now. And at least then, people, somebody might have had an idea that these were the signs important by weird weather, you know, volcanoes, earthquakes, plagues, this kind of thing, all the stuff that we've been having. Uh, at least then, they took notice of it. Today, no one takes notice of it. Because it's just, oh, the weather's gone crazy. Oh, you know, Ebola, it's another one of those. Except, except for one group. Except people like Pat Robertson. Yes, the Christian families. And they're the people who are actually horribly, as it is, they're the people who are closest to the truth of the matter compared to all of our, oh, wonderful, yeah. all of our wonderful scientists who apparently know why all this weird weather is going on. They know... You know, doctors and medical professionals know about Ebola uh, and all the other things that are happening. We have scientists who know, know about them all and explain them away. Yet, nut jobs like Pat Robertson, as far as we're concerned, are closer to the mark, except they're blaming except their the wrong people. They're, bl- they're blaming gays and liberals. And they're gonna, I mean, if something big happens in the U.S. where there's an earthquake or some major destruction, they're going to be the first to jump out and say, see, we've been telling you it's the gays and the liberals and the, the, the ungodly practices of all the population. We've been saying this for years. This and is they happen. don't get it that it's a psychopath at the top. Well, they probably because they themselves exactly. are psychopaths. They're the ones, while they're pointing the finger at everybody else, they are job. the ones who have brought it on. It's their job. Equally so. And this being said, you notice that among the elites, today, modern elites, some of them obviously getting ready for something to come. So some elites know at least partly that things are going to get bad. They're getting ready, but at the same time, they don't spread the knowledge. They keep it for themselves, and they lead the masses towards the, the butcher, the slaughterhouse, yeah. Um, yeah. to keep their power until the end, because if they spread the world, it means... Uh, the king is naked. It well, means civil unrest. Yeah, it means loss of power of the elites. Let's go back for a second to this idea of somebody being able to write a fiction book 14 years in advance of an event. And here we're talking about, we're talking about the Titanic. And in, in, in global terms, uh, the sinking of a ship with 2,000 people 
you know, it's it's not like the tsunami, you know, the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004, 2004, where how many, uh, a half a million people were killed? Quarter million. Quarter million people? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, I mean, in those terms, it's not, so you, you wouldn't imagine that something like the sinking of the Titanic would be um, some kind of morphic resonant thing in a cosmic information field unless, of course, it was just simply the uh, the natural outcam- outcome of psychopaths and power of capitalistic uh, greed, you know, the greed that went behind the building of this ship, you know, the, the hubris and the announcing of how perfect and unsinkable it was. And J.P. Not- Morgan. Yeah, yeah, J.P. Morgan. Let's not put any, you know, enough lifeboats on there. Mm-hmm. But you know, getting the names right, getting the the route, the mm-hmm. the, the details of the sinking so close, you know, that's really an astonishing feat. Now, there are a few books written in the past. Oh, I don't know how many years. Maybe twenty within the past twenty years. That, as far as I'm concerned, come astonishingly close to doing the same thing because, in fact, they describe things that are happening today that are precursor-type events happening today that, and then, of course, these books describe what then happens next. And one of these books was called Mother of Storms, and I don't remember the author right offhand, but it's about... it's about Strieber? Whitley Strieber? No, 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 no that's not Mother of Storms. Oh. No, this was a science fiction book, and it was about, um, it, it actually was uh, some kind of dystopian type situation where Russia and the U.S. were kind of at odds with each other, and somebody was shooting missiles uh, up in the Arctic, and these Arctic missiles you know, caused the release of massive amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which then caused these massive superstorms. It was it was like this it was like this giant hurricane that covered the whole planet. Or there were several of them. They all merged into one giant superstorm, and all this terrible stuff happened. And and it uh, the author of it, um, I think John John Gribben. Mm-hmm. No, no, John Gribben did the other one. Anyhow, the guy who wrote this book, he did. Uh, he was the science fiction writer. And he did some research into hurricanes and giant storms and so forth and how they're, you know, he goes on about heat exchangers and so forth. He doesn't talk anything about electrical phenomena, but he gives some very interesting science of how these storms would develop and, you know, carbon dioxide and so forth. So, so there's that. He wrote this book, and we see this... this uh, all this crying and yelling about global warming. Well, yeah, there's been global warming, Global warming in the sense of having hot spots here and hot spots there and cold spots here and cold spots there, all of which is very typical for the onset of an ice age. Okay, the second book was called, I believe, The Sixth Winter. That's the one that John Gribben mm. contributed. He was uh, one of the co-authors of it, I believe. And his idea was that uh, there was some... A secret government report where they were talking about uh, an oncoming ice age, and their their uh, their secret government report said that uh, if there are six winters in a row, or five winters in a row that are really really cold, the sixth winter 
will be the onset of the Ice Age because the sixth winter will never end. And in this book, interestingly, he talks about what he calls ice tornadoes. He talks about the strange behavior of animals, you know, wolves uh, uh, suddenly coming out of of uh of their habitat yeah their habitats you know attacking people in their homes you Mm -hmm. know bears acting strange you know as though they were as though some ancient um hardwired uh behavior was suddenly being activated by this extreme cold by these series of cold winters you know which you know doesn't seem so impossible now now that we know a lot about epigenetics and how uh, the, you know, what a person experiences or their grandparents, ex- you know, experience what your grandparents experience can be passed on to your parents and what your parents experience can be passed on to you because these various chemical changes can induce changes in your DNA. So say, say uh, wolves were experiencing five winters in a row that were very, very cold. It could induce changes in their DNA, which would turn on hardwired behavior where mm-hmm. they would start coming out of their natural habitats and attacking human beings, as he described in this book. And then he had the ice tornadoes, which were like giant ice storms that that would freeze things instantaneously. And that, of course, makes you think of... The day after tomorrow. The day after tomorrow, as well as the... Uh, that uh, was based on. Yeah, well, okay. So there was the uh, the mammoths, or the mm-hmm. what do what do you call them? mammoths? Were they mammoths or were they uh, mastodons? I don't remember. Mammoths, mammoths, yeah. mammoths, mammoths in Siberia frozen. that were apparently flash frozen. Flash frozen. Now, you know, that's something that used to really bug the hell out of me because I'd read about these things and I'd say flash frozen. I mean, we're talking about a fairly large. Um, chunk of meat there. I mean, not mm-hmm. not being rude to the mastodon here, but it's a fairly large chunk of meat. And you know, most women nowadays have freezers in their homes, and they know how long it takes. You put a you know you put a package of meat or a, or a roast or a, a package of burgers or something in the freezer, and you know what the temperature is. What's our minus eighteen? Minus eighteen. We have minus eighteen in our in our freezer. And it takes a considerable amount of time for a chunk of meat to freeze. Mm-hmm. Small chunk. A few hours at least. Hours. Yeah, it takes hours for a chunk of meat to freeze. So you've got this really large creature Tons. that is flash frozen mm-hmm. with food in his mouth. He's mm-hmm. chewing and he's frozen with the food still in his mouth. So you're talking about hundreds of degrees, or at least a couple of hundred degrees below uh, freezing. Do, do we have any estimate on, on, on how cold that would have well, to be? You, you have three factors at work here. To uh, quantify the heat exchange, how quickly it would cool down, there would be the temperature, the absolute temperature, the medium, the air. You have the strength of the wind, and you will have the content of the environment, water, ice versus air. To maximize the, the enthalpy, the, the freezing factor, you need to minimize the temperature, be negative uh, 50. You have to maximize the content of water, which is much more conductive than air. And you have to maximize the spin of the wind. So this instant frozen, frozen mammoth suggests a very strong wind with a lot of ice or water in it and a very low temperature. 
Yeah. That's yeah. how you freeze quickly a yeah. piece of You're talking, meat. I mean, come on. We went down and we did this cryotherapy. I don't know if anybody's ever tried any cryotherapy, but you get in this chamber, and the, ch- and the chamber using liquid nitrogen is the, the, the temperature is reduced very quickly to what, minus 70 or minus 80? Or lower, yeah, we're yeah. into 100. A brief period of time. Yeah. But there's no wind, it's dry air. Yeah, so here I am. I, I was there myself, personally. I get in this cryo chamber, you know, and I'm in my undies, right, because you want maximum skin exposure, so you really get cold, right? You want mm-hmm. some cold shock going on there. And I'm in there in my undies, and they start dropping the temperature, and I'm watching the, the little digital readout telling me how low And, I mean, it's freaking painful. Yeah, just for I a mean, few seconds. It, and, and it's just, I mean, you're in there for like a, a minute total and a half, of, two minutes. Yeah, a, yeah, a minute. I think we were in there three depending minutes. Depending on how long you can stand it, yeah. But it, it, yeah it, some people it start up, crying at one minute. <laughs> it, it builds up to the coldest temperature at the very end. Yeah. So it's just slowly yeah. over the three minutes. But, but it's extremely, ex- I mean, it's painful. It's like being cut with knives. Yeah. Right? And we're not talking about any wind. We're not talking about any moisture. It's very dry. Mm. It's very cold. There's no wind, anything. And it feels like you're flesh is being flayed from your body. I would I would say if you I, nice. mean the, I think the coldest temperatures have been up to like minus 50, minus 60, 90, up minus 19. Ever recorded? In Vostok, yeah. In, oh, yeah. Well, in Antarctica last year they broke the record. What was minus, it? I think minus, it was minus, minus 80 something degrees minus Celsius. Minus 80? Yeah, I don't think it was above minus, 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 minus Previously it was minus 88 and now it's minus 80. Oh, 90. Yeah. 90. Minus 90. Well, so I mean, in other words, I think that with some wind an external environmental temperature that was as cold as this cryo chamber can get. Yeah, with wind, like you're with saying, wind with, with strong and wind and snow and all yeah. that. Okay. That would do it, though. I mean, so this is how, this, is, this ha- has to be how these mammoths were frozen. Exactly. Ice tornadoes. And where they were beforehand, which is now under ice, because they were dug up from ice. Well, obviously, uh, it, was it was quite a different environment. But it very quickly turned into a frozen kind of an ice, an ice sheet, right? Yeah. Very, I mean, immediately something came in, and at least in that area where the mammoth was, froze it and the surrounding area. So anyhow, getting back to the line of thought here that I'm trying to trace, we've got this book, Mother of Storms, and we've got this book, The Sixth Winter. And then along comes, oh, so quite a few years later, Whitley Strieber, who writes his, he and Art Bell wrote a book called uh, The Coming Global Superstorm. Now, reading Mother of Storms and reading The Sixth Winter suggests to me that Strieber and Bell possibly could have read those books and borrowed on those ideas, but it's not even necessary that they did. I mean, look at the example of this guy that wrote about the Titanic and another person who had not read his book who wrote something similar. And I don't have that information right now. It's in my article on SOT. Mm -hmm. But there was another person who uh, wrote something that was rather similar and it was being published at that time. That uh, So there were these two sources and you know for all we know there may have been others that we we just we just uh aren't made aware of them so we've got two books here and then a third book streber and bell's coming global superstorm and then we have the movie the day after tomorrow which you know seems to me pretty obvious that it was based on the coming global superstorm and he talks in there about global warming 
changing the salinity of the um, North Atlantic, which changes the uh, the Gulf Stream, and then all of a sudden things start getting cold, and then you start getting these uh, this, these storms. And if you look at the movie, The Day After Tomorrow, you see hail where there's never been hail before. You see rain and floods where there's never been rain and floods before, or at least not to that extent. You see these all you know this ongoing deluges and so forth, which are all kind of like kind of like products of quote global warming because when you have global warming you have you know this excessive uh, evaporation into the atmosphere supposedly and then you have the precipitation well as pierre demonstrates in in his book um earth changes in the human cosmic connection there are other factors that are involved in getting you know massive falls of rain and one of those factors is uh, the weakening of a magnetic field because when the earth's magnetic field weakens then we get a lot more cosmic rays, and these cosmic rays form nuclei for water to precipitate onto land. Well, interestingly, there was a map uh, published oh recently, in a couple of weeks ago or three weeks, month ago, showing you know they mapped the weakening of the Earth's magnetic field. Now it's been in the news numerous times the last couple of years that Earth's magnetic field is getting weaker, weaker, and really fast. And it shows that it is weakest over the whole North American continent. Well, it also kind of includes uh, South America. So the Western Hemisphere has a much weaker magnetic field than the so-called Eastern Hemisphere. You know, I guess it's your perspective whether it's East or West. But North, North and South America have very weak magnetic uh, field, which means that they are probably subject to uh, somewhat more uh, cosmic ray penetration, which can lead to variations in the weather that are extremely unpleasant. And we notice that this uh, meandering uh, jet stream mm-hmm. that came down on the U.S. and froze the hell out of them last winter, and now it's predicted to happen again in the fall for the U.S. So well, it never really went away. That that yeah. loop has stayed over the summer. Yeah. Too. So. So one wonders what are the connections between the meandering jet stream and the weakening magnetic field. Well, anyhow, uh, prophetically speaking, what are these people tapping into? And I think it's something similar to what Pierre is talking about. It's like, uh, uh, you know, these psychopaths tap into or they are connected to in some kind of... uh, cosmic way to a uh, entropic, negative, destructive, chaotic archetype. And they draw, they, they channel, they, are, they act as conduits of that energy into our reality. And they begin to act in certain ways that are well recorded throughout history. And the ways they act then begin to be adopted by the people that they rule because psychopaths rise into positions of power. That's what they do. They, they, they crave it. They have the talent for it. They wear the mask of sanity. They have the assurance, the confidence, you know, the, uh, all these qualities that make them uh, such great rulers, supposedly. And then they completely corrupt everything they rule. Look at what George Bush did. Look at what... I mean, I mean, I know he's just a freaking puppet, 
But it's still, you know, I am really, really pissed off because when they when they did that whole 9-11 thing, they ruined the progress this planet was making. Now, you know, I can't get any rest because there's so much horrible stuff going on all over this planet. I can't even sit down and enjoy my flowers or, you know, read a book for pleasure because I have to spend all my time researching and paying attention to what's going on on this planet because, you know, I can't, I can't do otherwise. I can't, I get no rest because everything is so awful and I can't turn away from it. I can't stop watching it. I can't, I can't give up trying to put something different out there. Yes. So I'm pissed off. That's a, and that's a key point, trying to put something different out there. Because the Milgram experiment shows that human beings follow authoritative figure for the worse. But it also suggests that if the authoritative figure was showing a positive path, they would follow too. Because if you look at this archetype, Corruption, psychopath in power, destruction, lies, leads to cosmic reaction, resetting, and you start from scratch. Obviously, the psychopath kill its own change. They're mechanical. They're wired only this way, striving towards destruction, power, and greed. The cosmic reaction won't change. It's a universal law. If there's too much corruption, too much suffering, too much lies, there's a reset. So the only adjustment variable in these other equations is us, human being. We can choose which frequency we resonate with. And to simplify the scenario, there are two main thought centers, negative, psychopathic, lie-based thought center. And there is another center based on the truth, based on what Laura just described, what she's spending her, her days or years for, trying to provide simply an objective assessment of reality. And uh, now, if we don't want to repeat history, like Babylon, like Rome, the only source of hope, and I think it's very tiny, I'm not saying we're gaining there, yeah. but the only source of hope, is the necessary condition is to have this positive or this true thought center, and then more difficult is to have a critical mass of human beings who resonate with it. And that's very difficult because, like you said, I mean, it's like he, uh, these masses of people follow their leaders, mm -hmm. and the leaders set the example, and then they bring death and destruction on them. And, of course, I think at some point, you know, even these masses of people are, are going to realize, I mean, maybe they won't because, you know, what, what does it say about Noah? You know, one of the most ancient stories, which uh, they, they borrowed... It was turned into a horrible movie. The, the Mesopotamian story. And what does it say? It says that up until the last hour, when Noah went into the ark, they were partying hardy and, mm. you know, doing whatever it was they're doing. And then it says in Matthew, which is kind of reiterating the story of Noah, as it was in the days of Noah. Yeah, uh, people, I mean... Just in terms of what what we do and what a lot of other other people that are probably listening do, which you just described so well, kind of uh, keeping a watch on what's going on and fighting against the the propaganda. That, that's I mean, we've only recently kind of figured out, you know, in more detail maybe why we're doing it or understood why we're doing it. But we've always been moved to, to, do, to do that, and it's basically fighting for all of the people out there who are kind of in play 
in terms of their being the, the powers that be are attempting to subvert them, attempting, attempting to make them accomplices to yeah. the crimes of the elite and thereby imperil their, their lives and their future. And we are there trying to shout as loud as we can and point out the fact that you're being manipulated, you're being lied to. And it's not just about the fact that you're being lied to. It's about the fact that it's you being lied to is going to be, uh, cause a lot of pain and a lot of suffering, and it's all on you, you know? I mean, it's, we're not just doing this from an ideological perspective anymore. I mean, it starts out as uh, truth versus lies ideology, but now we're kind of fleshing out the details, and it's becoming much more real in the sense of your very lives are at stake here as a result of this kind of uh, sort of abstract battle that's going on between truth and lies. It, it, it does become real. It's a battle for people's minds because your mind begins to resonate with the psychopaths, with their standards, with their behavior. If you accept that torture is, is okay under some circumstances or, you know, if the national security is a state or blah, 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 the minute you have accepted that, you have resonated to their you know, to, to their lies because it has been proven again and again with scientific studies that when you torture people, you never get the truth. And uh, we should not underestimate the power of the mind. I think that's why the elites kept trying to discredit what they labeled parapsychology or metaphysics in order to destroy the very real connection between the mind and the universe. An individual mind can have an influence based on belief, based on several uh, emotional states, several parameters, can have an influence on reality. I'm not talking about wishful thinking or creativity on, on reality, but we're talking about a, a link between what people or an individual think and what happens around. So imagine now seven, eight billion people all resonating in perfect tune on the same lie frequency, all embracing the same values, wrong values, all seeing the same distorted, untrue vision of the world. And then you can imagine the, the massive negative signal sent to planet Earth and uh, possible consequences. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and there's various ways to look at it, and they're all kind of true, you know. I mean, we're talking about more of, uh, okay, it's, it's not exactly science, but it's in the realm of science, as Pierre described in his book, this idea of uh, there being consequences for uh, human, uh, you know, kind of corruption. There's more and, scientific support for those ideas than there is for most of the stuff that passes as, uh, what do you call it, uh, astronomy, astrophysics, and even even cosmology. physics and cosmology. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just incredible that the lies of science itself get propagated as widely as they do, considering that science is supposed to be the discipline. That's why it's, that's why it's, it's so important, I think. It's much more important to, uh, to try and put it within a scientific framework because it's too easily dismissed when it's in a religious framework. I mean, it is in a religious framework where, you know, you know, you have to follow the teachings of Jesus or whatever and be, live a good life or you'll be punished. I mean, that's the essence of it right there. Uh, but it's that too easily uh, twisted and distorted 
uh, and pe- or people can simply dismiss it as a, a load of hokum from a book. Well, they do, even else. when it's put in scientific terms, they dismiss right. it. But if we can get to the point where you could describe it from a scientific point of view, there would be a, there'd be a, a less chance of it being dismissed. You know, as an, an actual uh, scientific sure. kind of cause and effect that is based on real laws of nature. You're right. What is very frustrating is that you have historical proof of this human cosmic connection, the fall of the empires. Again and again and again. And they you, always fall following the same sequence of events. Sequence of events, fall of empire. Same, same story. You have the spiritual proof. All religions basically say the same about this uh, responsibility of human beings and consequences of deeds. And you have a tremendous amount of scientific proof. ESP experiment, telekinesis experiment, group influence experiment, role of the observer. All that has been highly documented. You have meta-studies about ESP and telekinesis. You have meta-meta-studies. You have this uh, IG uh, experiment conducted in Princeton with 2.5 million trials. Uh, you have a tremendous amount of, of evidence. And, but here, what you say, Joe, is true. More evidence is better. But I think you're facing something that transcends reason and transcends common sense and logics because... As Laura said, you redshift calls or antimatter. You have a lot of widely accepted scientific quote unquote concepts that have no evidence, scientific evidence to back them up at all. And, and everybody they're not believes even falsifiable. It. You can't even you know, I mean so it's not they're science, not even scientific. By, def- by definition. But everybody embraces it. On the other side you have this uh, metaphysics that crumbles under tons of evidence. And I still massively denied. So here you're touching the the real, you enter the realm of beliefs. In the, science, science becomes a belief system. And, yeah. Yeah. and and when you what you're just saying makes me think of what's going on in Ukraine right now. What's been going on in Israel? What's been going on in Syria? You know, you have the evidence, 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 and then you have them just you know you have the uh, the Ukrainians saying. Um, Oh, the Russia Russia is giving weapons to the separatists. Or, or Russia shot down this airplane. You know, Russia did this. Russia did that. And all the evidence that keeps coming out is absolutely to the contrary. But nobody's paying attention to the evidence. Or very few people, and they're listening instead to these wild declarations of absolute horse hockey. And the same thing with 9/11. They started it with 9/11. I mean, it's just crazy. And here you're reaching a very fundamental duality. On one side, we are preaching or defending a fact-based, objective assessment of reality. Reality is what it is, based on the facts, on the, the observation, on the proof, on the evidence. On the other side, you have a group of people that think in exactly the opposite way. They create their own reality. They are bathing in wishful thinking, reality conformed to their wishes. You have two opposite paradigms currently opposing, and people have to choose. It's even worse than that because the, the reality creators, uh, the reality that they create out of their mind comes from a fundamentally kind of destructive mindset. You know, it's, um, well, it's just to destroy, dominate, control. That's pretty much their primitive, uh, you know, uh, substratum right there. That's all they have. They don't have the other things of kind of you know, love and care and consideration and, you know, companionship and community and that kind of stuff. They just want to control and destroy. And that's their motivation. And they try and 
uh, I mean, people like that, people with that defect, essentially, in any society should be shunned because of what they try and do, because they marry this destructive mindset with this belief that they can, whatever they see is real. So what you get is you get destruction because that's what's in their head and they try and impose it on the world. They take no stock of objective reality. They think they are the reality and what they think is the reality. In any normal society, if they were, they would be shunned. They should be shunned. But how in the hell did they end up in power over us? I mean, that's just, it's a cosmic joke. It's ridiculous. It's not, I mean, it, I sh- that should never have happened. I mean, why would that ever, really? I mean, unless ordinary people are just inferior to them in some way, and they are, I suppose, to a certain extent inferior to them. Because why are we all, why is the entire world under their, under their control and unable to do anything about it? When you've essentially got defective human beings leading us all. How did that happen? Well, there's a, it's not only a choice between truth and lie. There's also a choice that goes with it between pain and comfort or the illusion of comfort. Yeah. Often, truth truth is painful. So again, it's this uh, dichotomy between a comfortable lie and a painful truth. So it's not only a choice on an intellectual level, what is true, what is not. It is a choice at the, in all the cells of our body, in our brain, you know, taking the easy way is part of it because, you know, one of one of the uh, evolutionary features of the human being is to conserve energy, and that's not only physically but mentally. And conserving energy means that when something comes along and it's easy and it's comfortable, it will be uh, it will be favored over something that's that's more difficult. And we start doing that with ideas and thoughts and things, and we start. Uh, Somebody tells us something, uh, okay, you're, you're eating that salad and it's a really delicious salad and it really tastes good, you know, wonderful dressing, lettuce, tomatoes and everything. And then somebody tells you that, you know, that lettuce and those tomatoes uh, came from Mexico where they're starving and they make these people work for, you know, just a peso a day in the, in the fields to grow that lettuce and to pick those tomatoes. And they go back and live in their little hovels and all of the produce of their country is shipped out of their country to the United States so that you can sit there and have that wonderful, delicious salad uh, while other people are hungry or other or children are being forced to make tennis shoes for you to wear. You love those tennis shoes or clothing or whatever, TVs, computers, etc. And somebody tells you about you know the suffering that is behind this pleasurable object or item that you have. And you're going to shut that out because the pleasure that you're experiencing is 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 uh, is desirable, and you don't want to experience that other pain. So you shut that out, and you start doing that, and you do it about everything, and you start doing it habitually, and then you start habitually lying to yourself, and you start habitually, you know, you know, figuring things out, jumping to conclusions, and because of these kinds of of behaviors, this selection and substitution in your mind, you know, you you begin to believe lies. And you you believe lies because it makes you feel good. You believe lies because it makes you feel comfortable. You you believe your leaders because they make you feel safe. And then what happens after that is that, you know, if somebody tries to tell you the truth, it causes the release of neurochemicals in your brain you know, if somebody really makes you face something that 
make your brain hurt. And this kind of pain, this these neurochemical mixtures that you know people experience under these kinds of circumstances is is like a short stab of major depression. Now, people who are depressed get that, uh, you know, seriously clinically depressed, have brains like that all the time or for at least an extended period of time or a long time. And most people don't like that. They don't like that feeling because it feels like you're falling into a deep, dark hole of blackness and despair. So they'll do anything to turn off that feeling. And that means lie to themselves. Oh, it's okay. What they're saying isn't true. Uh, what 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 you're telling me about those poor men? And they start nitpicking. So those Mexicans, they really don't have it so bad, or or they're really just lazy anyway. They don't deserve to eat this lettuce. I deserve this lettuce because I am, you know, I go to my job every day, and I and I'm a good per. I'm an American. I'm exceptional. I deserve this lettuce. Those Mexicans, they don't need that lettuce. So you lie to yourself and you tell yourself these kinds of things to make yourself feel better, to stop that pain in your brain. <clears throat> And that that's the kind of thing that happens, and that's the kind that's the quality of human beings that psychopaths use and play mm. on. That's, and that's another really raw deal that the humans get just by being human, and that causes an awful lot of problems in this planet is that lack of plasticity uh, in the brain that we lose as children, uh, where once a certain belief is taken on board, it becomes almost hardwired and there's nothing any objective evidence can do or very little yeah. it can do to change it. I mean, that's terrible, you know? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't even, it's, it's almost like it's not allowing for error, you know, or for manipulation or for lies. Someone comes along, lies to you, you believe them, you set up a belief based well, on it, but then more data comes in and you should be allowed to change it without feeling pain. There shouldn't be an impediment well, to the, learning yeah, about Yeah, but that's, that's part of our evolutionary, uh, uh, you know, advantage because... In order to survive under, you know, uh, early evolutionary, I mean, t- say a, a, a hominid, a, a pre-human or a pre-homo sapiens, you know, they have to evaluate things based on heuristics. Mm-hmm. Heuristic means, you know, it's kind of like a rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. When you hear the, that growling sound, that is a saber-toothed tiger, you know, and this is what you must do. Mm-hmm. And and you don't stop to check and make sure that the growling sound, growling sound is necessarily a saber-toothed tiger or not. You've just got it imprinted in your brain from earliest, from a, you know your mother's knee. You hear that sound, it's a saber-toothed tiger run. Mm. And so that becomes imprinted. And, and, and if you didn't do it instantaneously mm-hmm. based on you know, hardwiring, you wouldn't survive. Mm. Yes, yeah, so there isn't the option. It's not a good idea to have the option to second-guess yourself in, right. in those things because in, in the animal kingdom... It it always is a growl is a saber tooth tiger, right. so there's no need to second guess it. But but we've carried humans, that into into our uh, thinking, self reflective civilization. <clears throat> and it's more complicated than this because uh, the flip side of it is that a saber tooth tiger can come along and sing sweet nothings. Yeah, uh, because not growl our, anymore. our predators, the predators that prey on human beings, can imitate sweet singing. Uh, members of the little of the, birdies, yeah, or members of the same. Uh, and we don't, and we don't know that species. their sweet songs are masking mm-hmm. the growl of the saber-toothed tiger, and figuratively. So it's speaking. much more complex and difficult. Yeah, and that explains why psychopaths use this boiling frog strategy, because 
And that shows how dangerous it is to believe a lie, even a pity lie in the beginning, because you build neural connection according to your experience. If you start to believe even a minor lie, you will start to build this neural pathway, lie-based and pleasure-inducing pathway. And then the edits can build up on this initial neural pathway and increase the lie load to end up making us accept the most unacceptable things like torture and murdering of children. Once you're in this pathway, you're in this resonance, you're in this destructive archetype lie-based um, dynamics, you're almost enclosed in it. You're resonating in it and leaving the lie highway becomes extremely painful. And it's and what you say about the sweet song sung by wolves in sheep clothing is also an important factor because one of the big strengths of psychopaths is not, not so much the lie that they deliver, but the way they deliver it. We are hardwired to read emotions, emotional contents. And psychopaths are masters at projecting this emotional context of certainty, reliability, sure of themselves, convincing, charming, that will switch our emotional um, response and state and make us very more likely to accept the lies. And then there's another factor, shock. Mm-hmm. When, you're in a, one, yeah. when you're in a state of shock and somebody comes along, confidence and surety and they have the answers mm-hmm. and they're going to fix it and they're going to protect you, you are way more likely to take that imprint mm-hmm. in that state of shock than otherwise. I mean, look at look at how many people in the U.S. bought the lies of 9/11. Yep. It was and look how many people are are buying the lies of Israel uh, versus Gaza, mm-hmm. and how many people are buying the lies of Ukraine, you know, versus Russia. Mm-hmm. And actually, you have to you have to understand Ukraine is not doing this all its own. It's got. Uh, it's got the U.S. pulling the strings via NATO behind it. And meanwhile, you've got this, this guy, this very decent, very clever uh, guy, Vladimir Putin. And, you know, that's interesting. I just thought of that. The center of, I, I think the center of the greatest uh, magnetic field, or the greatest... Uh, Strongest. The strongest, strongest yeah. the strongest magnetic field on the planet today is like kind of like right over Russia, mm-hmm. you know. <clears throat> so, mm-hmm. and, and, which is not to say that they haven't had some weird things going on over there too, mm-hmm. because certainly it's 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 planet wide, and and we're not talking about a massive variation here. But uh, it's you know here he is. I mean everything I have ever seen the guy say, and I have watched dozens of videos. And I have read texts of his speeches, and I have observed and observed. And the man stands up there and tells as much of the truth as he is able to tell at any given time and not get shot on the spot. Mm-hmm. And, and meanwhile, there's this huge propaganda machine run by the West that has it's completely psychopathic, and it's been running day and night, day and night, day and night for years and years and years, and it's just ramped up. And it is. It's a battle for people's minds, mm-hmm. a, b- a battle for their souls. And even a lot of people in Russia 
have bought into the Western propaganda. Look at the people in Ukraine that have bought into the no. Western propaganda. People all over Europe that have bought into the Western propaganda. Mm-hmm. And, and, and here they are following a country that is how many trillions of dollars in debt. Uh, it has its own oligarchs. It has its, you know, complete failure. It's got probably, you know, a 30 to 50 percent unemployment rate. It has a most incredible homeless problem. Uh, it has millions of people in prisons. I mean, this is a country that they're admiring and wanting to emulate. Yeah. And that brings us back to our Four of Babylon. Yeah. Emulate, but it's... Um it's kind of the, using the analogy again of the people have been conned and fooled into being accomplices in crimes against humanity, essentially against their own humanity, and and that's been going on for a long time. But for a long time, people could have been kind of excused to some extent because they didn't know the a lot of it was being done um, covertly, and the manipulation and lies were very strong, and people wanted to feel good about themselves and uh, particularly like in the West and the USA they were told you know they're all good people and these were kind of a lot of them let's say good people Americans were, are really basically very good right. decent people they're so, helpful they're friendly so in the sense that we're in the sense where the where the US government is saying we're going off around the world here to spread freedom and democracy and it's everybody in America you all have freedom and democracy and you like it and it's good for you and you're good people we want to give this to other people and you can excuse people for being buying into that lie to, to some extent yeah. but now like getting back to the last kind of 14 years the mask of of who these the ordinary people of the world are being manipulated by is starting to slip and they're starting to show uh, more and more really what are. they really are and even putin coming along is an, is for me a kind of um on a more abstract level uh another opportunity by the universe, let's say, to to provide another a way out for these people to see uh, that they're being lied to, that uh, that they're not on the right side, that they are being made accomplices to crimes against humanity, and but that can only go, go on so long. Yeah. Before, I mean, once you've really spelled it out to people and given them all a fair chance, then you decide, okay, well, people have made their choice. If if, if against all the evidence that we have provided to the contrary as in exposing the fact that they're being lied to and manipulated and they're on the wrong side of humanity, essentially, uh, if they still choose to go with the, the psychopathic ideal, and then, okay, you've made your choice. And going back to the magnetic field, Earth magnetic field, which is extremely weak in the U.S. and very strong over Russia, not only, as Laura mentioned, weak magnetic field means more incoming cosmic rays acting as nuclear agents, increasing cloud cover, rainfall, lightning, hurricane and those kind of atmospheric tornadoes and those kind of atmospheric phenomena, but also the electromagnetic field of the Earth acts as a binding agent of the crust of the planet itself. So it means weaker magnetic field on a telluric level induces an opening up phenomena leading to phenomena like earthquakes, okay. volcanic right. eruptions, sinkholes, outgazing, and massive wildfires. So I don't underneath, think it gets <clears throat> kafrui, and up there it gets kafrui. So it doesn't... That reminds me of the story, of, the story of Atlantis, that an entire continent can disappear under the oceans. 
Yeah. Although it's like one of the biggest and most uh, impressive uh, sinkholes, quote unquote, uh, has appeared, at least two or three of them now, uh, over in Russian territory, you know. So, I mean, I think nowhere in the world is going to be spared this kind of uh, opening up. uh, uh, You're right. And the the effect, you know. And the field overall is decreasing all over the planet. In some places, it's decreasing faster, like in the U.S., but the Russia is also affected. It's a global event, but with some local variations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so anyway, coming back to chapter 18 of the book of Revelation, uh, among the things it says, it's talking about Babylon having already fallen. It's looking at it from a distance having already happened. And if we assume that this was written about the collapse of Rome, it's pretty interesting. But it says, but, you know, as we said, what happened in Rome is happening here now. And I can assure you that Caesar wasn't the cause of the collapse of Rome. He was the last one who tried to save it. Mm-hmm. Because Rome was actually an imperial society beginning with the Pyrrhic War when mm-hmm. they began to uh, war against all the city-states in Italy and take them under their control. And then the Pyrrhic War that occurred uh, because of their aggressions against the uh, southern city-states of Magna Graecia. And then after that, the, uh, the Punic Wars against Carthage. Mm-hmm. And by the time the Carthaginian Wars were over which was, you know, a hundred years or more before Caesar came along, or, well, not exactly a hundred years. So his, uh, his uncle, uh, Marius, was in the last of the Punic Wars. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, he came along and, and made a last-ditch effort trying to save it, and he wasn't trying to be a king. Uh, and then he was assassinated, and then that was the end, all she wrote. So I would say that if our if our reconstructed timeline it, is correct, within uh, within a hundred years, Rome was destroyed. Isn't it interesting that uh, Caesar was accused of trying to be a dictator? Yeah, that's exactly what they're accusing Putin of these days. Oh yeah, there there are many similarities actually between uh, Caesar and Putin and uh, and and John Kennedy too. So. You know, it doesn't bode well, but, you know, we can keep our fingers crossed, and if we can wake enough people up, maybe there'll be some safety. And going back to uh, to the Bible, not only Caesar may be extended for a few decades the life of the Roman Empire, but he gave a tremendous legacy that lasted for millennia, two millennia. If you look at the Old Testament, you two have... Two millennia, assuming. Yeah, or one and a half, according to a Fomenkist. And us. But if you look at the Old Testament, you already have this creed based on deception, destruction, vengeance, murder. Yeah. And the legacy and the New Testament, which is based on Caesar message, who was transformed into Jesus, is a totally opposite message based yeah. on mercy, on loving your neighbor and loving other human beings of uh, solidarity. And maybe this Christianity creed with all its effects managed to counter to some extent the destructive creed carried by the Old Testament and prevented more, much more frequent uh, cataclysms. And that's why today Christianity and all forms of similar religions are, trying, are 
being destroyed day after day. And that's not uh, surprising if Vladimir Putin is one of the few leaders who's trying to preserve the orthodox Christianity tradition of his country. Yeah, because a lot of the modern Christianity versions that go on in the U.S. are completely twisted. You know, mm-hmm. this uh, this prosperity gospel, Jesus wants yeah. you to drive yeah. a Mercedes. You yeah. know, Russia, kind of... Russia's always had a different yeah, orthodoxy. Yeah, East, East, Eastern Orthodox, which was is closer to original yeah. Christianity mm-hmm. than Catholicism was, and then the uh, splinter uh, Protestant groups. But anyhow, what did our author of Revelation have to say? How did it describe uh, this empire? And how does that apply? I mean, these archetypal descriptions, how do they apply to U.S.? I want to just give you a couple of excerpts. It says, Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. That is, if anything ever was, a perfect description of the United States, its so-called democracy, its so-called capitalistic system, and the way... And it has spread its sphere of influence into the West, you know, the Western Europe Mm -hmm. and many other countries, too, in fact. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled as high as heaven and God has remembered her. Pay her back, even as she has paid and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. And does that describe the attitude of the psychopaths running the U.S. Mm-hmm. that have been running it for a long time and even has been adopted by their influence and example by the majority of the peoples of the U.S. Mm-hmm. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire for the Lord God who judges her is strong. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore, cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet, Etc., etc., etc. The fruit you long for has gone from you, and all the things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, the great city, 
she who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And then it goes on talking about shipmasters, passengers and sailors, etc. And then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. So those are pretty accurate descriptions of the effects that psychopaths have on a civilization. And it's pretty interesting that it's in the terms of buying and selling and and commerce. Economics. E- yeah. Economics. It's, it's, it's a whole economic thing. So, of course, when when Putin issued his embargo, embargo on buying the goods of uh, the U.S., and the thing is, is, the U.S. doesn't really produce that much anymore because the U.S. has outsourced nearly everything, and that's why it has so much unemployment. So it's really kind of funny to me to to think about them thinking that they can actually do this and it's going to make any difference because now nobody's going to buy anything that they've got, which is no big deal. Well, it's kind of interesting because uh, the sanctions imposed on Russia, uh, the Russians laughed at them because they said, <clears throat> you know, basically, well, we don't need anything really you have. We can survive on our own. And uh, the sanctions that then Russia imposed on the U.S., the U.S. laughed at them because it was in terms of buying U.S. product. Uh, and the U.S. doesn't and sell any. The U.S. doesn't, they're totally different in the sense that the U.S. doesn't, it doesn't bother them because they don't sell anything to anybody because they don't have any natural resources. So they both had the same reaction to each other's sanctions, but, sanctions, but for very different reasons. And the U.S. is in a much worse situation, ultimately, because Russia can subsist on its own. The U.S. can't. Yeah, but, and not only that, there were, uh, last few years, I, w- I was reading some, some articles because I pay attention to these things and uh, the U.S. was buying more food from other countries than it was exporting mm-hmm. in the last two years because there's been bad harvests. You know, they've got this uh, this disease that's killing off the pigs and they've got, you know, various things going Droughts on. And Droughts and now This year they're not going to have any food. So who are they going to buy their food from if Russia won't sell any to them, mm-hmm. right? Or these, And meanwhile... Meanwhile, uh, the people that are really hurting are these so-called kings of the earth who have joined in with the U.S. and her passionate unchastity, etc. And Russia is not going to really be hurting because Russia has already made friends with and deals with Mm -hmm. South America. And guess where the U.S. has been getting a lot of its food and produce and Mm -hmm. so forth? It's been getting it from South America. Well, if it's all going to Russia... Mm -hmm. You know, I think that may reduce the amount that's going to come to the U.S. Mm-hmm. The U.S. has basically shot itself in the foot again. But they can't see it. And Russia is close friends with China. Mm-hmm. China is one of the main, China, Taiwan, you know, Malaysia, whatever. It's one of the main places that the U.S. has been getting a lot of their goods Everything also. Everything like 20% of their imports come from China alone. Right. So now if all of that gets transferred over to Russia... And the Chinese say, sorry, we don't have any to sell you, It's US. building up to a point where the rest of the world, essentially, like China, Russia, obviously, uh, and South America could just cut off the, U- the, cut US. Off the U.S. If they yeah. chose to do so, if, if the, the Chinese and the South Americans saw which side their bread was buttered on type of thing or where, where it was going, they could in probably Basically in cut off the U.S. and the U.S. Would, and so, you know, in a certain sense, this chapter could be 
a metaphorical description of exactly what is already happening now. I mean, we don't have any 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 big explosions and falling fire and so forth. That may come. Well, it has been happening. There's some drops there's, here and there. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, there's been some of that. And, and now we've got, uh, you know, this, this Ebola thing. But I don't think Ebola is going to be... You know the big plague that's going to take out you know eighty ninety percent of humanity. We reckon, I've been I've been predicting eighty ninety percent of humanity is going to get taken out by a plague, but we, I don't think it's Ebola. We reckon the Ebola thing is possibly more for the purpose of getting people vaccinated. They don't want to protect them from Ebola. They want to have an excuse to stick needles in everybody's arms. Yeah. For some other reason. I mean, and, and this is just more of this this evil. This evil empire, I mean, the New World Order, the beast of Revelation, the, the, the whore of Babylon. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, I mean, okay, so who's behind it? I mean, is it the USA or is there something other behind it? Now, there's uh, a very good case could be made that it's international bankers, and that these international bankers not only control the U.S., but they also control the European countries. Uh, those international bankers are primarily Jewish, as far as I understand. And also, most of the media is owned by Jewish individuals or Jewish com- companies. And we also would like to take note of the fact that this MH17 plane that took off from uh uh, from, from from the Netherlands to and that was shot down allegedly over Ukraine uh, took off from the same airport that the alleged underwear bomber uh, boarded a plane without even having a passport or prov- providing any or identification or didn't have a ticket and that this airport is run by an Israeli security company and we can make all of these uh, connections back to the Zionists and the Israelis and so on and so forth. But I don't think that that's the whole answer because there's so many non-Zionists, or I wouldn't say non-Zionists, but there's so many non-Israelis, non-Jews involved in these uh, these elite power structures that there is some other defining element, which is, as we continually say, is psychopathy. Now, maybe psychopathy is uh, occurs at a higher rate among Jews. Um, we don't know that for sure. I mean, it, it does appear to be that way. I mean, when you can, when you see a whole country or the majority of the people in a country getting out their lawn chairs and their potato chips and popcorn to sit and watch mm-hmm. a, basically a concentration camp of suffering people being bombed, being bombed then I'm sorry, you know. Uh, you made your choice. Yeah. You know, and, I, and I'll mention something here. I'm just going to bring this up, you know, uh, quite a few years ago. Uh, we were having a little uh, uh, session with Cassiopeians, and we were discussing um, some potential things that were, you know, invitations my husband had received for some research visits. And we were basically instructed to stay away from Tel Aviv because something big was going to happen there. Well, I suspect that uh, I suspect that there are some very large rocks flowing out, flowing, uh, flying around out there, and and our solar system airspace or non-airspace that have names on them, just like the Israelis put names on their rockets, you know? Mm. Well, maybe there's a big rock out there with the with name. With love from the universe. With love from the universe <laughs> to Tel Aviv. And about the Zionist connection, there are two other factors that might be worth mentioning. 
A, the ideology, the Old Testament, is fundamentally psychopathic. The vengeful, Yahweh is a psychopath. Exclusive, elitist, destructful God. Totally psychopathic. That's the ideology. Now, that's the nurture, the ideological background into which some people are born and grew. And, grew. and it does have an influence on your mind. Plus, if you look at the history of uh, Zionism, you realize, oh, Judaism, you realize that only once there's been proselytism and mass conversion. 7th century AD, mass conversion of Khazars, eastern uh, between the uh, Caspian Sea and uh, Black Sea, where Ukraine conflict is happening now, uh, probably a coincidence. And those Khazars were notorious for their brutality, for their psychopathic uh, tendencies. So today, you have Zionists who are Khazar descendants, Ashkenazis, who embrace the Zionists, the Talmud, and the Old Testament creed. So basically, you have the marriage of this psychopathic I nature, n- nature, the genetic Khazar substratum, and psychopathic nurture, the Talmudist Old Testament creed. Yeah, which is quite a detonating cocktail. It's a hor- horrible it. mixture, yeah. It's uh, and then you have the the testimony of of Hannah Arendt, who was a, a Jew in a concentration camp, and she she said that that there was a collaboration between the Jews and the Nazis, and that mm-hmm. they were selecting the people that were selected to be saved from the concentration camps and sent to Israel to become its new citizens were mm-hmm. by and large criminals and it was the the decent ordinary people who were allowed to die or killed or or whatever people need to understand thing, something about Israel and it's it, they, they hide it a lot you know and it's not it should be said more often which is that 80% of the citizens of Israel 80% of Israeli Jews are not from the Middle East at all they're for, they're, and their ancestors the, were not from the Middle the, East. No, none of them are from the Middle East. They all can't. Eighty percent of the people of the Israeli Jews in Israel today are from uh, Russia else. and Eastern Europe. They're all not of Semitic origin. But so the only thing that ties them to there. I mean, who would want to go there? The only thing that ties them is this ridiculous notion that this land was given to Jews. But these people, a lot of these people as well, who came from Eastern Europe and Russia to Israel, adopted Judaism. So they're not even mass. They're not even Jews going way back to the point yeah. to the time when this supposed Bible uh, God God gave them. So they have they have no claim to it on both counts on on a, from a religious point of view and from a, an ethnic point of view. Yeah, they have no 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 claim to it at all. But and then they sit there crying, saying, "Don't don't we have a right to a land of our own? God gave us this country. We have a right to it." And, and I mean. Just, and, just look at all of them. And this. we have right to be protected from those evil Palestinians, you know, who, who want to kick us out. Look at all of the top kind of politicians, leaders of the, of the Jewish state over the past 50 years, presidents, prime ministers, etc., even defense ministers, all those kind of people. All of them, um, first of all, are from Eastern Europe. Uh, secondly, pretty much all of them changed their name from clearly... Russian or Eastern European name, like with a SKY or SKI on the end, to uh, Hebrew names. So they 
Hebrewized their their first names or in some way or other translated their their Eastern European names into Hebrew and like Netanyahu for example sounds a bit kind of biblical it's actually Nathan I think it's his first name or his middle name or something or the first name of his father Nathan translated into Hebrew which is Netanyahu and gave it to and adopted it as a surname because it's Hebrew and therefore establishes this supposed link with him to well, to the Bible, to the Old Testament, and therefore to the land of Israel. But he's, he's, an, Eastern European, he's an Eastern European person who, whose ancestors a few generations ago adopted Judaism. And he, and he comes and claims ownership of a lump of land in the, in the Middle East and kicks the people. I mean, it's just so... Yeah. His, his real name is Molokoisky, Benjamin Molokoisky. And look at all the others. There's, there's something really interesting going on in Eastern Europe. So way back then, Pierre's mentioned the Khazars, but at around the same time, that's also when Russia came into being, the first version of it, Kievan Rus. And it's interesting that the, the most rapacious people besides the Khazars, so sometime afterwards, or medieval Russia, let's say, that gave them most problems were people in what was called Galicia, which is today Western Ukraine. And if you think of that violent anti-Russian attitude they have, mm-hmm. I kind of wonder, is there some kind of archetypal thing there, there, that goes way some, back? There's definitely some archetypal things going yeah. on. Yeah. But you know what? Right now, as the representative of this hegemony, we have the United States, mm-hmm. the great whore of Babylon. It has its sphere of influence, no matter who's behind it, who's doing what. I mean, how dare they... How dare they do the things that they're doing? I mean, it's like, I, I mean, another one. Uh, just the other day, they were, they, they declared that, you know, they wouldn't accept Argentina's repayment of its debt. Mm. Argentina wanted to appeal in the UN court. The U.S. says, oh, the UN court, you know, isn't allowed to handle this. We won't submit to that. I mean. Double standards up and down, one side and the other, and it's just I'm not even going to get wound up. And you up. compare compared to what Russia did a couple of months ago by forgiving 90% of Cuba's debt yeah. that it owed to Russia. Yeah, I mean a, a stark contrast to uh, stark an attitude contrast. towards your, your yeah. Well, well, we can get nations. on, but I think I think we can fairly safely say that uh, the future is not very bright based on what's going on. And, of course, obviously, in any situation like this, there are always people who survive, and those are the people who are aware and awake and alert and mm-hmm. paying attention and resonating with a different archetype. And keep watching the signs. And keep watching the signs, because we're going to shut down for tonight. We're gone a little over. Yeah. The future might be bright in the sky. Yeah. Prometheus trails. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Okay. Uh, thanks for listeners and thanks for chatters and everything. We'll be back next week with an interview with Peter Kushnick, co-author oh. with Oliver Stone of Untold History. Tune in. Until then. Far out. Have a good one. Bye.